Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Well, first, I'd like to invite you guys to enjoy a look at the trailer for Liberal Arts. I thought your essay was interesting. A spell check might be nice on, on these essays. Love those extracurriculars. You're not in yet, but uh, no, things are looking pretty good. So you don't want to go to college? Jesse Fisher. Professor Peter Hoberg. I know Ohio is not as glamorous as New York, but they're throwing me a retirement dinner thing. When is it? Weekend of the 25th. You know, check your schedule. Checking now. Ah, looks like I have to shift some things around. I'll be there. He never writes, he never calls. Oh, hey. <laughs> what, was that Professor Fairfield? Yeah. She was like the best teacher I had here. She was like the second best teacher I had here. Jesse, this is my daughter, Zibby. Hey. Hi. She's a sophomore. What was your major? I was English with a minor in history, just to make sure I was fully unemployable. You're like back in college. You're overdressed. I don't know if you know this, but uh, I'm a few years older than you. Did you think this was like a romantic thing? Just kidding. We connect really well, don't you think? I just can't figure out if it's because you're advanced or because I'm stunted. Because I'm advanced. What the hell are you doing? I don't know. Nobody feels like an adult. It's the world's dirty secret. I never met anyone that I trusted until now. I'm 35. It doesn't bother me. Well, it bothers me. My advice to you is put some armor around that gooey little heart of yours. One of the things I love about being here was the feeling that anything was possible. You get out of school and anything could happen. And then you do get out and life happens. So you're saying I should prepare myself for suckiness? No. A liberal arts education solves all your problems. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Kristen McCracken from Tribeca Films, and tonight's guest, Josh Radner. Hi, everybody. You excited for the movie? Really, you had to say that. It, no, it's really, it's really terrific. Um, so, Josh, let's just start. How do you pitch this film? Like, they've just seen the trailer, but what do you? How do you describe it in your own words? Oh, why'd you start with that? I, I, I don't. I, I have a hard time synthesizing my films into into pitches, you know, and that's why I write them on spec. So I write my scripts and then I hand them to people and say, read this and you'll you'll kind of get it. And I find in the once films are ready to be out there, I'm still, I'm having to learn a new kind of language to digest movies. I mean, what I had to start with this movie was a really strong idea, which is, you know, 35-year-old guy is kind of lost and adrift in New York, and he gets a call from his favorite professor at this liberal arts college that he loved back in Ohio, that he went to, where he went to school, and he goes back to speak at his retirement dinner, this professor's retirement dinner, and he meets and is fairly bewitched by a 19-year-old sophomore. And that's where it starts. Complications ensue. Correct. Um, how much of the 
as a writer director star, what inspired you to tell this particular story? Are there parallels to your life? You you're kind of the same age as, as Jesse. You're are you going um, through similar things? Well, my movies are they're not personally autobiographical, but they're definitely thematically autobiographical in, in terms of I was thinking about aging. I was thinking about how it was that I was suddenly twice as old as people who were in college. Like that really shocked me that I had aged because I wasn't planning on it, you know. It just seemed to happen. Um, and then I, I got this story idea, and it became like a kind of meditation on, on, on growing up or not growing up, on aging, on nostalgia, on accepting change or resisting change, all these things that are personally interesting to me. Um, but the real story, you know, I went back to Kenyon when, um, two years ago to show Happy Thank You More, Please, which is my first movie. And um, I, I had a really nice time. But uh, that was where I realized how much older I was than all the students. And then I started thinking about setting a, a movie at my college, which, which is where we shot it in Ohio. And no movie had ever shot there. And it's really one of the most beautiful college campuses in the world. So um, I just, you know, kind of started with this idea of, of a guy who didn't have much going on and couldn't get a foothold in the outside world and, you know, longing for this kind of lost Eden of, of the college campus. Were they open to you shooting at Kenyon? Yeah, completely. They made they bent over backwards to make it easy for us. We, you know, a real thrill for me was I got to bring an entire film crew to this place that I love so much. But it's it's really in the middle of nowhere. It's it's right in central Ohio. It's on a hilltop, surrounded by cornfields, and um, I think for the first few days people were pretty shocked. Like, what are we going to do here for the whole summer? And by the end, they were really emotional to leave, and it was really nice. I love a good college town. Hard to beat. Yeah. So I love the the movie's really thoughtful way of kind of meandering through the plot, and I mean that as a compliment. It just it's kind of like it just goes along and unfolds at such a lovely pace. Did you think about that in terms of setting the tone and how you wanted the movie to be? You know, it's interesting because I always overshoot in terms of material. Both movies, uh, both of my movies had about forty to forty five minutes of of shot and edited material that were that were cut that are not in the final cut. So the process of editing is really one of rewriting. You know, you have your script, you have your shooting script, which are somewhere between like 112 and 120 pages. You shoot it all. You get a rough assembly of it together, which is about two and a half hours, two, two hours and 20 minutes. And you realize you, you can't show that movie because it doesn't, it doesn't really work. So I cut an entire storyline. There was a whole storyline in New York with a friend of Jesse's that just was really great and just getting in the way of the movie. The movie somehow wanted to be on the campus. Like that's where the heart of it is. Um, and we didn't we didn't care as much somehow as viewers about the New York stuff. So you kind of want to get him to the college as fast as you can. There was a whole breakup scene with the girlfriend and all this fun stuff, but it just didn't really belong. You have to find the spine and find the heart of your story, and that was what we ended up with, you know. And that quality is, you know, partly in the writing, partly in the performances, taking the cue from the beautiful bucolic campus you're on, but largely it's found in the editing room. Can we talk about your stellar cast? Because you yes. have amazing Let's people. So we've got these character actors, Richard Jenkins and Allison Janney. Do you want to talk about the? Do you want to set up a clip? Oh, sure. We can set up a clip. Um, so my character, uh, his name's Jesse Fisher. He's 35. He was very um, enchanted by this one professor, Judith Fairfield, who's played by Allison Janney, and she was like this rock star to him and he gets very excited when he sees her and he gets a little tongue tied around her whenever he sees her on campus because he's just really in awe of her brilliance so uh, this is a scene where he runs into her in the bookstore on the college campus 
Professor Fairfield. Uh, Jesse Fisher, I, um, I took your British Romantic Literature class when I was here as a student. And? And I loved it. Yeah, she kind of scares him and thrills him in equal measure, kind of. Um, do you want, can you tell us about how you did, did you go about an, a normal casting process or did you um, know these people? Had you worked well, with people not, in different? Well, they're not, you don't audition Allison Janney and Richard Jenkins, you offer them the role. So Allison actually went to Kenyon College, which was a fun thing for us because, um, you know, when I was at Kenyon, there's a board of, you know, alumni who are out doing things and she was, um, one of the people that started to really pop when I was at college and in the theater and, and started to um, show up in, in movies. And, and it was a little later she got on the West Wing, but I've always been such a fan of hers. And, and it's fun because, you know, she shares a biography and with me in, in as much as she's from Ohio. She went to Kenyon, moved to New York, became an actor. Um, and I've always thought she was just so appealing and could do anything. You know, she really, her range is enormous and she's so delightful and funny and charming and has no idea how talented she is, which is, makes her even more charming. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that was just kind of an intuitive thing. Like when her name came up, it was like, oh yeah, Alison Janney, of course, like she'll, she'll play this role. And she's, in, she's really, I'd never seen her play a role like this, but I was thinking, you know, I was just thinking about this today. Like if you stack this performance up against like the mom in American Beauty, the kind of narcotized mom, like, it doesn't seem like the same creature. Like, it's totally different DNA. She's really amazing. Richard Jenkins, uh, who plays the professor, uh, Peter Hoberg is his name in the movie, he was a, um, uh, he's based on a professor that I was, was and remain very good friends with at Kenyon. Um, but I really, I wrote it for Richard, you know, there was no other actor I was picturing. And um, he did a small part in Happy Thank You More Please as, as kind of a favor. So I got to spend a few hours with him. It was actually my first day of filming, um, my first day of directing a movie. I was directing Oscar nominee Richard Jenkins. It was terrifying, but he was so kind and he's just a great person to be around on top of being one of the great actors in the world, I think. And. Uh, you know, he's, he's really terrific. He's open to suggestion, but he largely, I, I found like if you give Richard like four or five takes, you're gonna get everything you wanted. You know, he's endlessly inventive and really just super present. And he, and he seemed to understand this role in a very deep way. Um, with Elizabeth Olsen, the, the character, it's really the central uh, relationship in the film. And it's just such a, Jesse is so conflicted about kind of his feelings for Zibby. And you feel that along, and it just really builds the tension as an audience member, because you want him to be happy, but you want him to do the right thing, and I don't want to give too much away. But can you talk about that, about that storyline and how that came about and working with Elizabeth? Yeah, well, I'm, I mentioned to my producer, Jesse Hara, who, who I grew up with, who's a really good friend of mine, I said, uh, when I got back from Kenyon after that first visit, I said, um, you know, if I fell in love with a student there, that would be really inappropriate. And he was like, that's a great movie. And so I started to write these scenes between a 35-year-old guy and a 19-year-old girl. I and love I, when he does the math. He does some math to figure out their age difference at different points in their lives. Um, and uh, so I just started riffing on these scenes. And I, 
I, her name wasn't even Zibby. I think it was Rachel. I was just calling, you know, and I don't think a lot of these, I think maybe two lines from that ended up in the movie, but it was just a way to get these people talking. And the voice that started to emerge from Zibby was very sophisticated, but also at various moments she would remind you that she was 19. Like you'd get, you'd lose yourself in a conversation that felt very much like you're playing tennis with an equal partner. And then every once in a while she would um, remind you of her age and the difference between them. Or Jesse would think that because Jesse's a little judgmental and, um, and uh, you know, kind of a bit of a cultural snob. So I'm, I'm kind of setting up the next clip. I Should think I? that's what exactly that what we're you're heading? doing. Yes, yeah. yes perfect. Well, they, um, as they grow in intimacy, Jesse, he's uncomfortable with their age difference. So he uh, is waiting for her to come back from class and he finds uh, what they only call a vampire book on her bookshelf. And it's a very popular series of vampire novels that are never named in the movie. But he, uh, he decides on some level that she's incredibly unsophisticated for reading this nonsense. And, and uh, Jesse's one of those literary snobs who's of the opinion that the popularity of books like these vampire books are signs that Western civilization is crumbling. Um, so he basically says, fine, I'll, you know, she says, how can you hate something you've never read? So he says, fine, I'll read it. So he takes the day and he reads the book and then they meet uh, at a cafe and have a little book club discussing the book. And I think we, we cut into it, but he basically says that this is the worst book that's ever been written in English. And she says, have you read it? And she every says, uh, <laughs> there are worse books written in other languages. And he says, probably not, unless this book is translated into other languages. And I think that that's where we pick up so right around here. <laughs> we don't need to do this. No, please, let's. I need to know how you read these, uh, whew, I guess you call them sentences. Close the book and feel anything other than offended and sad. Well, millions of people like it. So when millions of people like something, that means it's good? No, it means millions of people like it. These books make people happy. We don't always have to be thinking about poli-sci or reading Chaucer, which, by the way, I hate it. You're not supposed to like it. But then why read it? <laughs> you love college so much, right? Isn't it all about understanding different points of view? It's also about developing taste. That was snobby. You're a snob. Uh, no. I'm not. Yes, you are. You think it's cool to hate things. And it's not. It's boring. Talk about what you love and keep quiet about what you don't. Dave Eggers just got in trouble recently for saying kind of the same thing as that. Did you hear? Oh, I thought you that was that a while thing? ago, though, right? Oh, maybe it Didn't was. Didn't he say it a while ago? Maybe. Someone, was, someone came at him with like, Yeah, I remember. I, I read about that. And, um, yeah, there seems to be a big like dust-up going on over, over criticism and what is the role of the critic and are people too nice, are people too mean? Um, it's an interesting conversation. I mean, I'm, I'm of the opinion that um, Laura Miller actually in, uh, I think, Salon or Slate, wherever she writes, I think Salon, she had a really interesting thing. She said, the reason I'm not, that I don't come out with my fangs bared for a first-time novelist is because no one really reads books anyway, so why would I take out a first-time novelist who's not, you know, um, why, why would I waste, you know, my mean words on someone that maybe wouldn't be read anyway? So she, in a way, she was saying to give support to them rather than... And, in and, a way, yeah. And, and I think when you're creating things, you get uniquely sensitive to criticism because, you know, a novel, a film, you're spending so much time on it. And you're, you're, if they're personal films, which mine are, you're putting so much of yourself into it. And it's so vulnerable that um, 
but I do think that we're we're gripped by a kind of epidemic of negativity, you know, and and it's not it's not really just critics. It's like the internet has exposed this, you know, uh, really virulent strain of, you know, uh, cruelty, <laughs> and um, I think it's unfortunate. You know, I just think that it's more fun and more interesting to talk about what you love, and you know, maybe don't talk about what you don't like. It's it's like it's like. Um, gossip or something you know it's like it feels fun in the moment but you ultimately feel bad afterwards I feel that way about just being negative about something you can kind of commiserate and feel like you're creating some sort of bond but ultimately it's frivolous so when you wrote that scene did you think did you were you on Zibby's side the whole time or were well, you did I think you, she wins the argument she does you know yeah. she definitely wins the argument but I you know for year you know when you, you're at someone's house or apartment and you look at their bookshelf like in an investigative manner you're like, hmm, what are they reading? You know, and you kind of make judgments about them based on what they're reading. Um, I think that's a natural thing. I think Jesse probably does that, really does that. He's a, he's a kind of, he's a lit snob, you know? And he's kind of like um, the kind of guy who thinks that reading should be good for you and that he's kind of like health food or eat your vegetables kind of reading. It should be nourishing and it doesn't matter if you don't like it, it's supposed to be good for you. Whereas Zibby, I think rightly feels like, well, if I hate it, why should I read it? You know, I, I want to read something I like. And there's two sides, you know, there's, it's a great argument It took to me have. a long time to get to that point, actually. Where I mean, the best for me is that sweet spot where something feels both nourishing and you can't put it down. I mean, that to me is the mark of, of greatness. Did you agonize over which books to put in the film? Because Jesse's always kind of walking around with a book. There's lots of books in his apartment. Um, a certain book by David Foster Wallace has is a major plot point. Did you? I wanted to like get up to the screen and really read all those spines and see what they actually were. Um, did you think carefully about what books you put in? Were there debates about that? Well, I actually <clears throat> none of the books are named, um, and that was intentional. And the reason I didn't name the books was because if I say, "Oh, this is my favorite book of all time," I wanted people to bring their own favorite book to it. Because if you name the book, people say, you know, their opinions start clicking in, and they go, "I've never read that. I don't know what that book is." Or they say, "I hated that book." I suddenly have turned on you. So for now I hate that you. Book. Right. Now I hate you. Um, or some people would agree, but ultimately I wanted people, the viewer, to bring their favorite book to it. You know, there's a book that Jesse says he goes into a bookstore and reads the last three pages of every. Um, I mean, for me, it was I used to do that with the Hours by Michael Cunningham, which for it just has this exquisite last three pages, and I whenever I wanted to feel kind of inspired and sad, I would I would read those. Um, and Infinite Jest is another big one, but it's hard with proper nouns because you don't want to, uh, you know, if you if we're talking about a book we love, we don't have to say, oh my God, I love Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, because at a certain point you're you're doing it for the audience. And I felt like Dean, there's a, there's a depressed student that Jesse connects with at school. They really connect over this book and it's really big and the coverage looks just like, you know, and they reference Wallace and even just referencing his suicide at some point. Um, and I just figured there would be no need for them to say what the book is. And if you don't know what the book is, it won't detract from your enjoyment of the film. And if you do, it feels like you're, you, you know, you're, you're, you're on the inside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what you're I a cultural elite. Um, I noticed today on the Facebook page um, that on the liberal arts Facebook page, there's a Goodreads list set up for fans to kind of write in their favorite books. So I thought it was a really interesting way to market your film or to have, you know, a ancillary piece of yeah. getting connecting the audience with the film. I mean, we talked about this like it's one of the few movies that is really a celebration of reading. And it's weird to be using one medium to kind of celebrate another medium. But um, it seems to be, with certain people who are especially readers, 
they greet that part of the movie with great relief, you know, like, oh my God, someone's standing up for the readers because they're an endangered species. And um, there's also a big uh, classical music sequence in the movie, which I do name the classical songs. You know, there's Beethoven and Wagner and Vivaldi and Jules Massenet and all these people. Um, but we were, when we were talking about, well, how do we reach people who don't know about this film or maybe don't keep track of Sundance movies but, but might really like it? So we, we were saying, well, there's readers, you know, there's bookstores, there's classical music lovers. So we're really trying to find the best way to engage that crowd. And um, I like talking about books. I like arguing about books. I think it's, it's fun, you know. Um, I do it in the movie. I do it in life. So we're just allowing, we're um, getting people on their Facebook page to just kind of talk about what they're reading. And there's lots of liberal arts majors out there in the world. There are. The, they're yeah. coming out of the woodwork. How many here? How many liberal arts majors are there? All right. We'll talk after. We're all hanging out. The Apple Store. That's what we do. Um, so this is your second feature. Um, how how's your learning curve? What is, is there anything that you learned on this film that you'll that you totally didn't know before? Or are there are too many things to name. You know, every film is entirely different. Like if you every novelist I've heard has to say they they have to teach themselves how to write every time because it's not like all novels are created equal. You have to you're writing a new one, so you have to it demands new things of you, and that's what I felt. You know, this this movie. It's, it, it shares some themes, and it, it, you can, I think you can tell it's the same filmmaker on some level, but it's a different movie than Happy Thank You More, Please, and it had different demands. I think there's a more formal kind of cinematic quality to this movie, whereas Happy Thank You More, Please was a little scruffier, a little more handheld, a little, a little more grainy in every way. And this movie has a little more, I don't know, kind of formal... Um, it's a little more disciplined, I think, and, and a little more disciplined in terms of the plot, whereas Happy Thank You More Please had, the, it was kind of mosaic of different stories that were swirling into this symphonic whole, hopefully. And then this movie follows largely one story all the way to the end. Um, the hardest thing for me, and I'm trying to get over this, is that this thing of putting myself in my movies. Um, the first movie I was writing largely to give myself a good acting opportunity, and the directing came up after that. This movie I knew I'd be directing, um, but rather than subject some poor actor to my bullying him into trying to get him to play the role I would have played it, I think it was easier for me to just step forward and do it. Although there were a few nights I kind of I almost lost my mind because I just didn't want to act. Certain days I just wanted to be behind the camera. But um, you know, we landed on our feet, and I had really good support. So, what's it like to? I mean, directing yourself. Are there days where you're just? angry at yourself as an actor or are you yeah definitely and i but i have really good eyes behind the camera you know my my dp i really trust my producer jesse um and then i go and watch some playback every once in a while just to see like if we're on the right track and because i wrote it and because i have a, an ear for it i can kind of feel when we can move on like i know like okay we got it we can go uh -huh. yeah um, I don't think I can not mention Zac Efron. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, Zac um, Efron's in the movie. <laughs> Zac Efron's in the movie. He just kind of pops up and you're like, and I, I, I hadn't really read the notes and I was yeah. like, is that Zac Efron? And then it is. Can you talk about that role and how, how that came yeah, out? Yeah, I, I wrote this part. His name is Nat and he's this weird, mystical spirit guy, Jiminy Cricket figure who just pops up on campus at the weird moments and he doesn't go to school there. He just says he's visiting a buddy of his, but he's always alone and he wears this Peruvian hat and you can't tell if he's on drugs or not, but he's always really up and really happy. And he says these things that are like kind of borderline genius awakened or idiotic, like you can't quite tell. I happen to believe that 
everything that Nat says, I believe it 100%, including his feeling that we should be talking about crop circles more, which I do believe. Those are weird. Have you guys Is that your next movie? Crop circles? What? Is that your next movie? No. Um, <laughs> but I think we should be talking about them more. Um, and, you know, Nat, the, the, the trap with that character was I knew that some people would try to play him ironically or play him kind of like joking, you know, kind of like, I'm just a dude who's saying things. And I, and I thought it would be really a mistake. And I met Zach at the Maui Film Festival a few summers ago. We were both there for a few days and had some really great conversations. And one of the things that struck me about him was he just had this very sincere, open quality. Um, he's not real snarky or ironic. He just, you know, really wants to do good work. And, and Jesse, my producer, uh, floated his name first. And, and we just reached out to him. And, and his, his team was keen on him doing it, but on the condition that, you know, he would be... He's kind of like a little secret in the movie. You know, we're not marketing on his back or anything. And, uh, but he shows up and, you know, you're like, oh my God, it's Zac Efron in, on a liberal arts camp. Like, I didn't think this was going to be part of my night, but it is. Um, and he's really funny. He, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really great it's performance. It's delightful. It's yeah. really sweet. All right, so I want to open this up to the audience. Do you guys have some questions? Yes, right here. Hello. Hello. Um, you touched upon um, the points of view of Zibby and Jesse, and it seems like they're little elements of yourself in each character. And I was just wondering, did you discover anything interesting about yourself as an actor, as a writer, as a director throughout this whole experience? That's a good question. One that I don't know how to answer. Um, I mean, I think I'm, I'm making movies to um, wrestle with something, like, and I just do it publicly. Like, rather than talk about it with a therapist, I just make a movie out of it. And um, I was I was wrestling with with aging, not in a scary kind of health threatening way, but in a just the way that you suddenly get older and you you know, there's a character in here who says that he he's in his sixties and he says he always feels like he's nineteen. And that no matter how old he is, he still feels like he's 19, but he looks in the mirror and it's not a 19-year-old staring back at him. And it's this strange thing, you know, my temples are getting gray and I, and I, and I just feel like, what's going on? Like, how'd this happen? Um, so I decide, rather than bitch about it, or, I don't know, get a lot of plastic surgery, I'll just make a movie out of it. And, um, and I'm kind of wrestling with these things, you know, like, what, is it, what does it mean to grow grow up and what does it mean to grow uh, grow up gracefully um, you know there's a character uh, towards the end of the movie <clears throat> a female character who says uh, I want to be an old woman with long gray hair and a ponytail and I want to have a really really wrinkly face and she says I think getting old could be really nice and I really like that flip because it's so culturally not what we're about we're about like youth is good old age is bad, wrinkles are bad, gray hair is bad. You know, we have all these, these crazy uh, beliefs and I kind of wanted to subvert them for myself and rewrite a story where there was some health involved and some, some growth. So I feel like I'm, I'm trying to grow myself up as I, as I and, and, and you know, I do feel like I grew up making this movie and, and, I, and, I, and I did get to the other side of some of those concerns and that I feel, a little older, but in a nice way. So something happened, 
I, I can't pinpoint what it was, but being able to ask those questions and work through them in this particular medium was really good for me. Thanks for your question. Anyone else? Second row. Uh, yes, um, I'd like to ask, since you're famous to lots of people as an actor and How I Met Your Mother, uh, when did you decide to turn into directing, writing, and all those? Uh... Um, well, I turned to writing when I had cavernous amounts of time as an actor in between jobs, and I didn't want to lose my mind, and I wanted to do something creative. and. So I started writing short stories, and that led to writing screenplays. And the first screenplay I wrote was called The Adulthood Project, and it got some attention, and, um, but no one wanted to make it. And then I got on How I Met Your Mother, and I started writing Happy Thank You More, Please. But I was writing it to be, to, as an actor. Like, I wanted to write myself a great film role, and they would have to cast me because I would, that would be the condition on them using my script. Um, but then I... Uh, my producer and, and my agent got very keen on the idea of me directing it. And I did a ton of readings with, with uh, different actors that I know um, of the first script. And I learned so much, and I learned about how delicate the tone was, and I learned that I could, I could say a few words that would help them with the tone. And I realized that there was a part of me that was like already directing the movie. I was in dialogue with the script and, 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 and actors. Um, and so I stepped forward and directed it. And I completely fell in love with it. And it really, it took my career in a whole different place. And it made me, a lot of the things that made me uncomfortable as an actor, which is it's kind of powerlessness or feeling um, like I wanted to be a part of the whole storytelling thing rather than just, I describe it like it's the difference between playing a violin in the orchestra and being the conductor of the orchestra. And I was more interested in being the conductor on some level just because I had that whole sound I had all those instruments at my disposal rather than just playing the one part. That said, I still want to keep acting. I think I do. I don't know. I really like directing movies, though. It's, it's been a great discovery. Third row. Hi. Hi. Um, I found in the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of, of um, discussion in, in TV and film and, and articles about, about extended adolescence and like man-boy syndrome in men and um, you have the movie Young Adult and, and your film and uh, HBO's Girls. Very different films, by the way. Yes, <laughs> I, I don't doubt it. Um, but do you think this is a recent trend, the, this preoccupation with this idea of extended adolescence that that you're not an adult after you leave college, that there's still a lot of growing you have to do. Um, and if it is recent, why now? Well, I guess, d does anyone here feel like an adult? That guy. <laughs> okay, so that guy feels like an adult and no one else. So congrats, by the way. What's it like? Um, so I think that, I don't know if it's, uh, a, new, a recent sociological phenomenon. I think, you know, my parents' generation, they got married in, you know, 20 to 23 and had kids at 24, 25 and, and really just were and forced to kind of... Bought a house and did all that. And now, um, you know, the job market has changed. People live with their parents longer. Um, I, don't know, I don't know exactly why it is. Maybe, maybe it's a symptom of our own um, kind of success or something that in that we we have it's it's almost like depression is is a, like a real first world luxury like to be depressed is you know if you don't have to worry about certain things then you can start asking yourself some really deep existential questions and get really sad um 
But um, yeah, I don't know. And I don't know if it's a specifically American thing. I heard this amazing thing about how it's sometimes tough for Will Ferrell's movies to translate overseas because they're so American. You know, Anchorman is so American and Talladega Nights is like NASCAR. It's like so American. And, the, and I was told by a very reliable source the reason that Step Brothers, they had a hard time connecting Step Brothers uh, with, with it, that movie in Europe is because it's not uncommon for men in their 40s to be living with their parents still. <laughs> so they didn't understand the joke. <laughs> um, that's neither here nor there. But uh, I, I don't know. And, and when, I, when I think of protagonists, I generally think of them at that precipice between all the, all the looking, you know, it's kind of like you're looking down, you're like, whoa, I, I've been climbing for a while, but I still have a lot to go. So I'm not writing about people who are at the base of the mountain, and I'm not writing about people who are at the top of the mountain. I'm kind of writing about people who are mid-climb and a little shaky and scared and don't think they're going to get there. So my movies are a little bit about, I'm just formulating this thesis as I go, by the way, but I'm kind of liking it as a metaphor. And then, you know, the, my movies are about from the, the middle of the mountain, hopefully up to the top or nearing the top. Um, and that feels like fertile, dramatic territory for me. You know, I don't want to write, there's actually a line that says exactly that. Alison Janney's character says um, to Jesse, I've seen the emergence of your kind like an infection, all these feet over articulate man boys who never learn to toughen up. You know, she says exactly that. She says, don't be one of them. Go work with your hands, build something, punch someone in the face. <laughs> so I was aware of, of it. I was kind of, I was writing into it and trying to subvert it at the same time. Anyone else? Towards your right-hand side, third row. Hi. I'm a big fan, so hi. Thanks. Um, well, hi. I can't believe you just greeted me. Anyway, going back to this. Can't um, believe I just what? Greeted me. Yeah, it's fine. I'm... We're both human beings. <laughs> okay, so going back to career expansion, um, you've already written this, and you seem to be very articulate and also a big reading fan, so do you see yourself delving into maybe novel writing? Um, you know, I, I used to write these short stories. I was really interested in writing fiction, and I, I, I looked at them recently, and there's some good stuff in there, and there's also some real nonsense. Um, I think that I'd have to look at what the story is, you know? Sometimes you come up with a story and you say, well, this is a movie, and then other times a story is like, no, I think this is a play, and maybe another time it's a novel. And you, it's hard to know... Um, like I have a story, like a kind of children's movie that I've wanted to do for a long time. And I was talking, my friend, a friend of mine is a really genius visual artist. So we were talking about collaborating on a kind of children's book or a graphic novel and maybe putting it in that form first. So I'm not sure. I really, I like prose and I like, I like essay writing too. You know, I like just kind of, I don't know, taking the mountain metaphor and turning it into an essay or something. That's interesting to me. Um, but I don't have any plans to write a novel, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule that out. I mean, I, I, I like writing in whatever form it takes. Is you, you almost have to let the subject dictate that. We have time for two more questions. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm fascinated by people such as yourself who say, I had an idea about aging and college, and then X amount of time later, there's a film. I'm a writer and I feel like I have ideas all the time and then I sit down and a paragraph later I give up. 
So maybe you could talk about that next step after the idea. How do you do the follow through from point A to your end product? Great question. Guys, these are good questions. I'm happy about that. Um, there's a really nice book by Anne Lamott called Bird by Bird. Does anyone know that, that book? Yeah. Um, and her whole thing is if you set out thinking, I'm going to write a novel or I'm going to write a screenplay, <clears throat> you'll be crushed under the weight of just the, the task ahead of you. But if you say a guy walks into a cafe and he sees a guy wearing a, um, a white hat and he's got this very strange chin and there's a briefcase and you just say, that's your task, like that's your first bird and you write that and then you get your next task. And she says, writing a book is a series of small tasks. And, you, and, and then you look back and you, you, know, you just deal with what's in front of you. And, and it, it's actually, that's a spiritually awakened thing. You know, the Buddhists say that, <clears throat> that one of the definitions of enlightenment is doing one thing at a time. You know, like I'm just tying my shoe. There's no other thing going on in the world right now other than shoe tying. And if you can just live in that, then you move on to the next step. And so I always, I think that, that one thing is like giving yourself small tasks is really good. Um, another thing is, um, you know, it's an interesting thing. Like making one movie gives you permission uh, in your internally to make another in that you've seen, your, your, it's, you've seen it go from script to, to screen and you saw that as a reality. And if, if you can get some sort of tangible, if you can hold something in your hand and say, look, I made this, it's a great feeling and it's a great feeling of encouragement. Another thing that um, someone told me, uh, one of the features of highly creative personalities is starting more things than you can finish. So all your, your starting and stopping is actually evidence of great creativity. It's just a lot of those things aren't ever gonna come to completion and that's okay, but they're kind of like the manure that fertilizes the ground and out of that something will, the, the really good ideas, like I have way more abandoned stuff than I have stuff that I completed. It's not like my, <laughs> my, my uh, computer is not just like, happy thank you more please and liberal arts. Like it's so big with like abandoned ideas and you have to pay attention to where the energy is going in terms of what is almost demanding to be finished. And you have to have it be a subject that you, is rich enough that you want to wrestle with it. Like I had a really silly idea. I know it's not bigger than a 10 minute short film. I might write it with a friend, but I'm not going to obsess over it the way I'm going to obsess over like wrestling with aging or something, you know? I also heard this great thing from a writer named Stephen Elliott in San Francisco where he said, your, um, every project is a race against your own enthusiasm for it. So there's like this window that's closing and it's like you got to finish while you're still enthusiastic. So there's a lot of distractions today. There, there's a writing program called Freedom that you should probably get, which takes you offline. Like you plug in like two or three hours and it won't let you get online. So you can just be with whatever you're working on. But you, it takes an immense amount of self-discipline, but just practice, you know. I also meditate and that's helpful if you can get quiet if, if, for a bit every day. Is that helpful a little bit? Okay, good. We have a final question in the back row. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to play off of a couple things that you mentioned, uh, like about being stuck halfway through the mountain, as like I'm sure you felt before you landed How I Met Your Mother, as like I'm sure the majority of these people here came to New York for some type of film, writing, 
everything singing acting whatever and like being stuck at that with like small bit parts in film and then you finally hit how i met your mother and then you have this time that you mentioned to make happy thank you more please and like that was your one baby so you got past that step <clears throat> but i want to know on like a truly personal level how it felt when you got a standing ovation at sundance for liberal liberal arts because I was like the first thing I read about liberal arts, like when I was watching the podcast on Sundance, and it just mentioned how like this huge grand ovation for liberal arts and like how it personally made you feel to finally wrestle past that like demon and accomplish what you just did. Whoa, dude. <laughs> Sorry about you. Jesus. You kind of said, like, what's going to happen in season eight? Um, well, um, God damn you. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's weird. I, I've found you don't learn that much from success. You learn a lot from failure. And it's annoying because I prefer success to failure. I just like it more. It just it feels like my day is better if I feel like I'm succeeding rather than failing. But much like you never feel like you're older than 19, you never really feel like you're a success in some weird way. And it's like this myth in our society that like when you get there, you're going to feel this. And I remember the first two seasons of How I Met Your Mother, I was really depressed. And I was depressed because... I thought that what I got would make me happy. And I put way too much on that experience. You know, like, well, if I'm on a TV show that's going to run for a while, like, of course I'll be happy. And it's like, no, that's not a given. You know, happiness is... There's this great Carlos Castaneda quote where he says, you can either make yourself happy or you can make yourself miserable. The amount of work required is the same. And, you know, people who are miserable are working really hard at it. And people who are happy are working really hard at it. So um, I remember... You know, I don't know why this is, I always feel like weird saying this, but like the fact that liberal arts got a standing ovation at Sundance was like, um, like really made some news, but happy thinking more, please got a standing ovation at Sundance and no one talks about it. Um, but I remember both times, especially even more for happy thinking more, please. Cause that was my debut as a filmmaker. I remember being up there and I remember telling myself, take this in, this is happening and you can enjoy it, you know, cause it's a little, I don't know, I'm like a have Eastern European Jewish blood in me that like, it's like, oh no, terrible things are going to happen. Like I would say something good about, you know, something happened and my, my parents would be like, you know, just, uh, and, I, and I've really worked hard to get over that. So, you know, happy thank you more please is a lot about encouraging abundance in your life and saying this is right now, this universe, like this is what I want more of. And that's... Uh, you know, once I realized that the universe was listening to me, um, that was a paradigm shift in my life because I realized um, all the negative thought that, like, like, have you ever heard the phrase, worry is a prayer for things to go wrong? You know, that I was creating a lot of my negative circumstances. And once I got into this space of, wait, anything's possible, I'm the author of this, then, you know, and I'm still learning this lesson. Like, I haven't mastered it. I'm still like, rolling in dissatisfaction with various things in my life, which are embarrassing to even admit. Cause like, but you know, I was waiting to go out here and I was watching my trailer and I was thinking like, wow, this is like really cool, but I'm not like walking around being like, my life is awesome. 
Because you, you, you have to maintain a little bit of dissatisfaction, I think, to create. And I don't mean misery, because I don't create from misery. But I think it's okay that everyone doesn't love what you do. It's, you know, I'm, I'm writing something now where I had a character say, you know, dissatisfaction is um, important to the artist. You know, too many compliments and you're finished. You know, you got to keep a little bit of tension going. And... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't feel like I'm at the top of any sort of mountain, you know? I feel like I'm, I'm mid-climb, and I, I, got, I, I, I feel like right now I'm on like, I'm a little balanced, but if I want to keep going, I'm going to have to throw myself into less balanced places, and I'm going to have to scare myself. And I'm going to, you know, if I make another movie just like this one, who cares? Like, they have this movie already. I have to do something else. Then I'm going to go into a place where I'm scared, and I'm going to start asking myself, well, oh, people are going to turn on me. The people who love these movies aren't going to love these movies. Some people are never going to love my movies. Why can't everyone love me all the time? I want to be loved. Like, you just, your, your mind will just go and go and go and go and go and go. And you have to just uh, watch it, and it kind of disables it a little bit. That's why I meditate, because if I don't, if I don't quiet this thing every once in a while, it devours me, you know? And then you can be, once you get quiet, you can start hearing, you know, you can start hearing inspiration for projects or, you know, different things come through. So, I don't know. Does that, did that kind of answer your question? It was a big question, and I appreciate it. I just didn't know how to answer it. I did my best. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you guys for coming. Um, Liberal Arts opens next Friday. Oh, yeah. Can I just say one thing about that? Liberal Arts opens next Friday. Um, <laughs> it opens on the 14th uh, at IFC, IFC, Center. IFC Center on 6th Ave. Yes. And where's the other theater? Two in, two in LA, I think. Right? Yeah, where's the... Oh, no, it's only at IFC in New I York. I think you're in New York. I think they opened another one in New York, did they? Okay, just the IFC. But we're opening the next weekend in six or eight cities, the next weekend after that, 10 or 12 more. Uh, you can go to our Facebook page, please become a fan. Um, I'm on Twitter now, <laughs> and I'm giving updates of uh, liberal arts-related stuff. And um, if, you, if you go to see the movie and you like it, which I really hope you do, please tell everyone you know, like, we, we, you know, we're not in an Avengers-type situation here. Um, we really need, uh, it's a word-of-mouth kind of movie, and if you can tweet about it and Facebook it and tell everyone you know. And if you don't like it, you know, just keep it to yourself. Like, there's no, no hard feelings. Just move on to another movie. Um, it's not worth talking about things you don't like, It's not worth talking like, about right? things you don't Talk about what you love. Keep quiet about what you don't. And on, on Twitter, should they use the hashtag liberal arts? Yeah, that'd yeah. be great. That'd Social be great. Media. And I have a funky Twitter handle. It's Josh Radner, at Josh Radner. Um, but uh, thank you so much. Thank this you. This was really fun. Thanks, this guys. This great. Thanks. Go see the movie. One more time. Thank you again to Josh Radner.